Hi, this is Nathan Toops, and you're listening to episode one of Embracing Disruption. So one of the goals with Embracing Disruption, the podcast, is to actually go over the philosophy that governs new technologies and new ideas. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a new and exciting aspect of mobile computing. It's called contextual computing. You may have heard of Google Glass or other wearable computers. That's exactly what we're talking about today. I really started thinking about contextual computing after I went to South by Southwest V2V, which is a new tech conference that South by Southwest runs up in Las Vegas. While I was there, I had multiple opportunities to try on Google Glass which, if you're not familiar, is a wearable set of sort of futuristic-looking glasses. It's actually only a a semi-wide piece of glass on the right-hand side, and it actually has a little display that shows a sort of semi-transparent view of what you're looking at. Now, on Google Glass, there's also a camera, and there's some accelerometers, like what are on smartphones, and there's even like a little touchpad on the side that helps you navigate menus. Now, by itself, it's a little creepy, if you're having a conversation with somebody, you're just they're staring at you and they have a camera pointing right at your face. And sometimes you'll see someone engaging with Google Glass and they just sort of get lost in another world. They're dealing with Google Glass. And you know they are because the little light pops up. The the screen, you just you aren't even talking to that person anymore. They're off in their own world. But at the same time, I saw that there's a lot of promise. I spoke with some people that had very interesting perspectives, and we're actually going to be interviewing one of those people today a guy named Kyle Samani from Pristine. Pristine is a funded startup based here in Austin, Texas, and they write apps for surgery on Google Glass. So I was lucky enough to meet Kyle at South by Southwest V2V, and then when we both got back to Austin, I was lucky enough to go and interview him and meet him at Capital Factory Incubator, which is this really cool space in the Omni building. There's a some really, really amazing startups that are in that space. And it's caught enough attention that recently when Barack Obama came to visit Austin, Texas, one of his stops was actually at Capital Factory. Now, before we get into the interview with Kyle, I guess we should go over the fundamentals of contextual computing so that we're all on the same page. Contextual computing as an idea has actually been around for about a decade. It started with a couple of Georgia Tech researchers And they had this idea of what would it be like if we had an always-on, always-present computers that actually would sense everything around us. It would sense both objective and subjective aspects of any situation that we're in. Now, if you really think about that, this kind of can get really creepy and almost like big brothery. And at the same time, we think about the possibilities. We think about what would happen if we took the, the iPhone and made it invisible. Like, what would happen if we had this computer that just got the context of our lives? And that's really where we are in the beginnings of Google Glass. I think Google Glass is probably one of the first devices that has really sort of latched onto this idea and said, what if? And that's really where we are with Google Glass. It's not being sold to consumers yet. It's really out for developers. And we're really sort of exploring and trying to find out what's possible with these types of technologies. Now, Kyle thinks about this topic a lot. 
Kyle doesn't just work for Pristine. Kyle's actually the CEO and founder of Pristine. And he writes on his blog, um, but he also writes for pretty influential journals in his industry as well. And his ideas on this are really powerful. He actually wrote a blog post that he references in our interview called The Marginal Value of Google Glass. And I'm just going to start our interview right there. Um, And the point of the post is to try and identify the key fundamentally unique characteristics of this form factor, right? Google Glass is a computer, just like your iPhone, just like your Android, just like your iPad or your desktop or your laptop. Fundamentally, it computes. Um, the only, you know, so the question is, what is special about the form factor um, that drives value? And I think there's four unique characteristics of the form factor that can be taken advantage of. Number one is hands-free. Number two is the heads-up display. Uh, number three is what I like to call being friction-free, um, meaning it doesn't take three or, or even six seconds to initiate using the device, right? You can literally start using it within a matter of a quarter of a second. Uh, and number four is the first-person camera. Um, so the best applications for Google Glass are going to be applications that take advantage of at least two, if not three or four, of those unique characteristics um, and applications that re- really fundamentally depend on those unique characteristics, right? Reading your Facebook feed doesn't require any of those things, which is why Facebook on Glass is terrible. Because yes, I could read Facebook posts, but it doesn't. Right, Facebook isn't intrinsically designed around those unique characteristics. Um, so the applications that we look to develop um, very much take advantage of those. Which brings us to an interesting spot, right? We have this hands-free, heads-up display that is always on and is instantly available, and yet it's awkward with social. In social is what we think of the the technology that has been pushing mobile so much at this point. And this actually continued our conversation in the interview is to the the other strange ramifications of using something like Google Glass as a social media tool. You know, Glass is a social device. You know, there's enormous numbers of mixed opinions about Glass going from one end of the spectrum to the other. Uh, I tend to fall on the negative side of the spectrum as far as consumer adoption of Glass. you know, Google has some developer guidelines out there for Glass. Um, I think they're all too fluffy and, quite frankly, too kind um, to the device. What my problem is with Glass uh, is the social signals it sends to the people around you. Glass is very contextual, not only to the person wearing it, but I'd say even more contextual to people around the person wearing it. So, you know, I remember I when I first got Glass, I turned on the Twitter and the Gmail notifications, and I was at home talking with my mom for dinner one day. Um, and I got a Twitter or Gmail or whatever thing popped up and she said, damn it, I'm talking to you. Why is your Gmail or your Twitter up on your stupid glass? Right, and to me, that was kind of like this, this moment when I, it was very clear and obvious that, you know, when you're wearing glass and if you're getting push notifications being sent to you, which is one of the key fundamental uses of glass, whether it's a text message, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, doesn't matter. If you're getting notifications from whatever social or data-driven service or news service, whatever content you want, doesn't matter. If it's being pushed to you in real time or near real time, you are telling everyone who you are physically with that the virtual world is more important than you. Um, And I find that to be very offensive um, kind of as a social thing. You know, obviously everyone plays with their phones. Yes, some people do pull out their phone while you're eating dinner at a restaurant. 
those are, again, personally people that I try not to associate with or spend lots of my time with. And my friends and family personally are people who, when we're having dinner, we're at a bar, we're talking, whatever. It's like the phone goes away unless there's like an emergency. Now, the moment I get up and leave the restaurant or I go to the bathroom, I'm going to pull up my phone and I'm going to whiz through 10 emails, sure. But while I'm talking to you, like, I need, I want to have your attention. Um, and I think glass fundamentally destroys that. Um, you know, and uh, anyways, I think it's a little bit harsh to think of it in those terms, but I think it's the most honest um, way to think about glass in terms of social interaction. And, and this is precisely the thought process that changed my view of Google Glass, is that if you think of it like a, a Me Too device, if you think of it as an iPhone that you strap on your face, that it becomes this really obnoxious, sort of socially awkward device that really kind of gets in the way. I mean, you you know who's wearing Google Glass. It's very, very obvious. And it's kind of annoying. But if you shift how you think about Google Glass, if you think of it as something that can actually help you with the context of certain situations, it fundamentally changes the value of Google Glass. And that's where we kind of go next with this conversation. And then I'd say if you look at this same issue from the other side, from the person wearing the device, um, you know, I said Google has these developer guidelines and the developer guidelines are effectively keep it timely, designed for glass. I mean, they're, they're pretty generic. Um, kind of in the same context in light of what I just described, my most important developer guideline to myself is if there's some content being pushed onto the screen of glass that's not relevant to what I am physically doing right now, it shouldn't be there, which effectively destroys any form of content push right from any media service because no one, no one on Twitter is tweeting at you knows what the hell you're doing. Right. None of your Facebook friends or your Instagram buddies or Evernotes or Pinterest or whatever, even CNN News, doesn't matter. None of these people know what you're doing, um, right? And there's really no way for them to know. Yes, they might know where you are, but even if they know where you are, they don't know what you're doing within the last three and a half seconds. Right, right. Right, and so I find all of this to fundamentally just be, a, quite frankly, an egregious distraction, um, and it just doesn't let you do what you're trying to do. Um, and then if you take the same logic and extend it further for enterprises, that's why this device is such a compelling enterprise device. Um, because an enterprise, if I'm a retail employee and I build an application and I need to look up people's faces to find their shopping habits, that's a very defined use case. And I know pretty much that's my job for the next six or eight hours. Right. right? If I'm a surgeon, okay, I know I'm going into surgery. And like, again, I'm going to put on glass when I go in the OR. And I know what I'm like, again, as a developer, I know what my users are doing so I can design very specific applications for those very specific points in time. The same is effectively true for every enterprise application. Because um, in the enterprise world, you generally know within a pretty narrow scope of what your users are doing at any point in time. Um, whether you're security and surveillance, whether you're a warehouse worker, whether you're a factory worker, a doctor. I mean, even painters and artists and cooks and chefs and restaurant workers and retail workers. For all these people, if you're an app developer, you by and large can list probably on one piece of paper the five to six most important things that person does all day, every day. Yeah. And so you can design to that and program to that. And I think that's extremely powerful. And that's exactly the point. That the only way that contextual computing can work is that you actually have to really understand the context. And right now, with how new the devices are, where we only have basically a single platform if we're going to talk about Google Glass, is that we need to know the very specific circumstances upon which it needs to be used. And this is why when I was talking to Kyle and he told me that he was doing Google Glass app development for surgery, and that all the apps were happening in the operating room. 
something clicked. And I was like, you know, we don't have to worry about the surveillance state. We don't have to worry about creepy conversations with my friends or annoying my mother when I'm having a conversation. That if I'm using it in the operating room to help me do a better job at being a surgeon, or if I'm working in retail and it helps me connect with my customers, or if I'm, I mean, imagine one day that it could be involved with scuba diving and that you could get the important information about your dive computer right there in your scuba mask. I mean, there's any number of things where contextual computing actually makes a lot of sense. It makes um, the, the context of the activity that you're involved in is, would be wonderful if we had computers that just automatically knew how to help us do our job better. And so that's why, sure, the idea of a pie-in-the-sky notion where a computer knew all the context of everything that I'm doing is actually problematic. It's a very solvable problem when we come to understanding the context of helping us get our jobs done in our careers. That being said, there's a real fear that technology like Google Glass is the ultimate invasion on privacy. I mean, if you look at the technology and imagine if everyone started wearing something like Google Glass, that means everyone has a camera strapped to their face and a microphone that's available to broadcast what you're doing on the internet almost instantaneously. And so I thought I would raise that concern with Kyle as well. People talk about Glass as like the ultimate privacy invasion tool. Right. Um, I find that to be generally not true, um, at least for consumer usage. I think there's some enterprise adoption that could, that could be. Um, but as a, as a consumer, Glass is such an obvious and non-deceptive device. Um, your cell phone is more deceptive than Glass in almost every way. If I want to record you on Glass, or even take a picture for that matter, I need to nod my head back or tap on the side of the trackpad, both of which are pretty obvious physical motions. I then need to say, okay, Glass, record a video, or okay, Glass, take a picture. At that point, literally everyone with an earshot knows exactly what you're doing. Um, and then the screen turns on, right? So the light's on, and I have to be looking directly at you. You know, people whose job it is is to spy and follow around. You know, the number one thing is to kind of be like hidden around corners and right. you know, looking the other way and hanging out on, 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 inconspicuously. Right. Um, so class is, is extremely non-deceptive. Um, especially, particularly the last point, I think, of, of the, for those of you who haven't seen glass, I mean, there's a, when the screen is on, people who aren't wearing the device, who are around the person wearing the device can see that the light is on. It's very clear yeah. um, that something is going on. So in many ways, it's very obvious when people are trying to do something. Now, your phone, on the other hand, I could be at a restaurant at the table next to you, spinning my phone around on the table. The microphone could be on, and I could be snapping pictures, and you wouldn't have a clue. Now, the other side of this where I say people could argue that you're encroaching on privacy is obviously for police and security people. Yes, they're going to have cameras. Now, there's already cameras in most places anyways. For the places where there's not a camera already, I guess that's that's a marginal security, you know, privacy breach. But... I mean, most traffic lights have them these days. Malls have them. Hospitals have them. Not, not all restaurants do, but increasingly banks, you know. There's already a lot of public places that have security cameras. Um, now, the one area where I think you'll find it, that people might be a little bit offended by new adoption of glass, I would say, would be retail. Um, so you can imagine, right, if I'm, if I'm JCPenney or I'm some retailer, it doesn't matter, I'm Express, and I equip all my retail staff with glass. Um, so when you walk in, right, as a customer into Express, we can do some, a little bit of facial recognition. We know who you are. We tie that to your Express account. And one of the last six times you came in, you purchased four sets of jeans. Um, and usually we introduce all of our new customers to our blouses on sale this week, right? Well, obviously, I know you're only buying jeans from Express, so I'm not going to waste your time 
<laughs> going to the blouse. I'm going to go over to the je- right, take you over to the jeans because I know you want to buy jeans. And I think that brings up a great point, which is that Google Glass doesn't actually introduce a new problem here. That sur- ubiquitous surveillance, we're, we're already sort of in the state. For instance, the retail store maybe that wanted to use facial recognition to see a customer profile, there's nothing preventing them from doing that with traditional cameras that are already in the store. So if anything, Google Glass gives us a very obvious way that they're pulling in this information. It actually gives us, as the person on the other end, context as to how they have access to that information. Which doesn't make the situation completely clear, but it gives us at least a starting point to kind of look into the social ramifications of using technologies like Google Glass. I hope this gave you a really interesting introduction to contextual computing and Google Glass. I know that thinking this way is sort of new for me, and listening to really smart people in the industry uh, has been really eye-opening and nice to see what actually is going on with contextual computing and wearable technology like Google Glass. I appreciate you listening to episode one of Embracing Disruption. I also wanted to remind you that we have one week left of voting for South by Southwest for the book reading for Embracing Disruption, a Cloud Revolution Manifesto. If you go to embracingdisruption.com, you can get more information there about our podcast, about free downloads for our book, and about the history of the project itself. Also, I recommend checking out the show notes. You can get more information about Kyle Samani's blog and his company, as well as reference articles for this podcast. Thank you for listening to episode one of Embracing Disruption. And until next time, keep on striving to do great things.